Hi, welcome to We Fixed Real Estate. This is Misty McAfee, your host extraordinaire. I'm here with Fred Glick. Say hi, Fred. Hi, Fred. <laughs> and I'm also here with Eli Melamed. And you want to say hi, Eli? Hi, Eli. Okay, great. And this is part three of Fred and Misty Talk to Eli, and we go over the agreement of sale, and we're just having the best old time. So let's go to it. Do you remember where we left off, Fred? 1975 with Three Dog Night. But anyway, (laughs) um, yeah, I actually do finally remember where we left off. It's always complicated with with us. So uh, we left off On the California Residential Purchase Agreement, the RPA-CA, on page three, number eight, and it talks about what's included and excluded in a sale. And basically, anything that you see in the house that's literally attached by hard wiring, hard piping, is stays with the house. It's called a fixture. Oh, we're playing a little Eli's music. I'm sorry, it was still up there. You still never heard of this, Misty, huh? Yeah, I think we have to turn it off for YouTube okay. or for okay. you know copyright. Anyway, um, so in the agreement in eight uh, B two, there is little check marks that the agents put for stoves, refrigerators, and washers and dryers, uh, saying all of them, except except some people have the beer fridge they want to take that's in the garage, et cetera, et cetera. So it talks about what's included, and you can read it as to the exact things. It's, it's all pretty much there. Um, it also talks about leased or lien items, including solar leases, and they are just terrible. And if you can get a discount and buy them out, you're much better that way. But you might be buying a house where you're stuck with an incredibly bad solar deal, but nothing you can do about it except pay them off and sell their system, which is worth nothing. Um, and it also talks about in Part C what's excluded from the sale. Uh and brackets on the wall. And this is where I love to talk to Eli about. Eli, let's talk brackets. Let's talk brackets. Yeah, not rackets, brackets. So some houses you go into, there's TVs attached with brackets. There's there's uh, uh, things on the wall that are attached in a different way. Just, just go in and talk to people about you know what this all means and what they should do. And anything else you want to add about paragraph eight? Well, um, I guess I should give people a rundown of why this even matters. The reason this matters is because a lot of people think when they're buying a house, they're buying everything inside of it. And that's not always the case. Uh, when you are buying a house, you're typically only buying the house and the fixtures, as Fred was mentioning. Uh, but a lot of people don't take appliances to mean fixtures. So for some people, a... Uh, refrigerator, even a stove, even an oven or a dishwasher, these things uh, to them might not constitute a fixture because it can be easily removed and replaced and or relatively easily at least. And so the reason that this provision exists in the agreement is to ensure the party's agreement as to what constitutes a fixture for the purposes of the sale. So that way somebody doesn't show up Uh, take possession of the house after closing and say, where's my oven? You know, you don't want to have a 
problem there if somebody thought they were buying a house with an oven and the other one thought they were selling a house without one. So uh, as far as brackets go, it's kind of the same thing. You know, these brackets are, in a sense, fixtures, right? They're built into the wall. I think any reasonable person would assume that. But uh, as some people might be aware, and when it comes to matters of contracts and purchase and sale, reasonable isn't always what you get. So some people would say, well, I'm taking the TV because it's not a fixture and the brackets go with the TV because I need to hang it in the next house or apartment or wherever I'm going to be living. Other people would say, no, 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 no. You can take the TV. That's your personal property because it's not fixed, but the brackets are fixed. And so in this sort of case, uh, you know, it, it talks about items excluded from sale and, you know, 8C specifically states that audio and video components, if any such item is not itself attached to the property, even if a bracket or other mechanism attached to the component or item is attached to the property. So it, it's clearly stating that the audiovisual equipment is itself not considered a fixture. Right. The question yeah. is going to be as to whether or not they're going to be willing to leave the bracket. 8C does state in bold, so everybody's clear, that brackets attached to walls, floors, or ceilings for any such component, furniture, or item shall remain with the property. So the default setting, if you will, for this agreement is that a bracket is considered a fixture. Now, there may be people who say, take your brackets. I don't want them. There may be people who say, uh, you know, I, I want to install different brackets or a different whatever. So this is the sort of stuff that people have to pay attention to and uh, make sure that they know what they're buying. You're not just buying the shell of the house. Sometimes you are. You know, sometimes a, a, a good agent will will uh, advise you, you know, are are you planning to remove these appliances and upgrade them? If so, let's try and exclude them from the sale. Maybe we can save a couple thousand bucks, right? Let them take their stuff um you know yeah, it's usually usually like washers and dryers that people have this affinity for that they take them with occasionally a fridge it usually happens when somebody just bought it and is in love with it and then has to move for some reason but yeah. sometimes people just don't even want to have to buy new uh new appliances sure you know, you've got a seller and they're moving into a new house and they're saying my appliances are better than the crap that's in the in the house I'm buying, and you tell them, all right, then take your appliances and give me three or four thousand bucks back. You know, yeah. maybe that works for everyone. You but know? one thing to make sure everybody knows: if you're getting a mortgage, the uh, appraiser is going to look and make sure there's a stove there. So there's got to be a stove. You can't just let it disappear, uh, especially before the appraiser gets there. Right, right. That's a good. That's a great point. Yeah. Okay. So number nine, closing in possession. So the first thing it talks about is it asks if you're going to occupy the property or not. So if you're competing in a market that's crazy, they don't want to sell it to investors. They want to sell it to owner occupants who are going to obviously pay more. So that's an important clause to put in if you're going to be an investor. Uh, right now it's going to hurt you, but you have to disclose it. So then it talks about the time and the dates that you can take possession of the property and um, where it's seller occupied or it's vacant. So it's it's usually close of escrow, close of escrow plus a few days. And if it's a few days uh, less than 30, there's a form to fill out. And if it's more than 30, there's a different form to fill out. We won't even go into the details of that right now. Um, 
And on tenant occupied properties, and this is where I really want you to chime in. Why don't you pick up 9D, Eli, because this is perfect for you. Yeah, so 9D, um, it's a little complicated because depending on where the house is located, whether or not there's a written lease, the length of the lease and the terms of the lease, you as a new buyer are likely going to be subject to the terms of that lease um, if it's if if you have notice, presumably, if you have notice. The, the, the real problem here is that a lot of sellers, they might not say anything. Um, they might not say, you know, that they've uh, that they've got someone living in the property. They might otherwise, you know, just have, have, or maybe there's someone living in a back house or something like that. If there's an accessory dwelling unit, also known as an ADU on the property, Th- these are the sorts of things that um, are important uh, and need to be addressed, need to be confirmed. So the standard language here says that the property will be vacant for at least five days prior to the close of escrow, unless otherwise agreed in writing. And the issue here is that there are some jurisdictions where um, a a buyer, a new owner, if they're planning to live in the residence, has the right to remove a tenant, even under rent control, uh, even under an existing lease. They have a right to sometimes remove a tenant if they're going to be occupying. Yeah. Isn't it like 60 day notice? Uh, Well, that's, it depends on the jurisdiction under, under, Typical California law: If you're on a month-to-month lease, right, and it's sixty months from the land, sixty days from the landlord to te- to terminate, and only thirty from the uh, from the tenant. That's the typical typical. Uh, but that's on a month-to-month. It could be different if they have a year left on the lease or more, uh, or six months, or however much it is. Sure. And the problem that you run into also is the mortgage company again wants you to move in, so. It, it can't be more than 60 days. So the seller will have to give them 60-day notice before it closes, which you can always revoke if the deal doesn't come through. Well, you can theoretically also get the parties to waive notice. Yeah. Theoretically, one of the things you can do as a seller is tell the uh, tell the owner, tell the buyer, uh, sorry, as a buyer, you can tell the seller, uh, you know, I'm only going to buy it if I can live in it from day one. I don't want to wait for this guy. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to have a tenant. I don't want to have this guy screw up the house I'm buying before I take over. I don't want to be responsible for anything. Uh, I just want to live in it. And uh, it's possible that the seller could go to the tenant and say, look, you know, I need to either terminate your lease or I need to um, buy you out somehow. It might be, it might, you know, in, in a, in a, seller's market you're probably not going to get that but if it's in a buyer's market you could probably you know say i'm not going to buy it unless you give it to me vacant i don't want to deal with a tenant i don't want to wait three or four or five or six yeah. months. and then you probably got to pay pay the tenant to go to leave well that's the seller's at, at that point that would be the seller's obligation to ensure that they're going to find a way to deliver a vacant property and that's just a thought that a lot of people this, this isn't something that comes up very often um, but it is important because if you do take title to a property with a tenant in it under a valid written lease, you are taking over the position of the landlord under that lease. So you're going to be subject to it, except to the extent that applicable laws and other regulations allow you to remove that tenant. 
Right. And if you're a good listing agent, you will have checked as to what the situation is before you ever list the property. So, okay, let's move on. In um, ENF, it basically tells you at the close of escrow that the seller's assigning everything to you, all the rights that you have, uh, any kind of keys, alarm systems, passcodes, condominium stuff. Um, buyer may be required to pay a deposit to the HOA to obtain keys and accessible HOA facilities. So realize there may be a fee. And once you're, it depends if the listing agent did go and get all the condo stuff ahead of time. They mostly do not. So you just got to wait and see what those charges are because there may be uh, a move-in charge of a couple months. So important to keep an eye on that. Uh, number 10, if it starts with the word statutory, that means we ask a lawyer. But um, can you give us just a brief overview of this, number 10, A, B, that kind of stuff? Uh, it's tough to make it quick. To make it quick. Yeah. Um, there's a reason for all of these disclosures, but I'll try to, I'll try to uh, make it as fast as I can here. So... In the state of California, when you want to sell a property, you've got to make certain disclosures. Some of them are federal. Some of them are California. Um, the main ones, uh, there's a lead-based paint disclosure. Uh, there's other statutory disclosures. There are issues having to do with um, you know, natural hazards uh, to some extent if you live uh, you know, near a near a military, you know, shooting range, like an ordinance, a live ordinance area. Um, there's there's other types of airports, uh, airports, and toxic waste yeah. sites. Well, there's everything bad, basically. Yeah, and in addition to that, you know, you have to get the seller and or the seller's agent to provide uh, what's known as a transfer disclosure statement and an AVID uh, agent visual inspection disclosure. All of these things are designed to give the buyer as much information about what they can expect to encounter if purchasing this property, anything that they are not aware of that the agent or the owner are already aware of inside the property or relating to the property, boundary lines, easements, um, permissions, anything, you know, bro broken uh, pipes, um, broken windows, mold, anything that would affect the property that isn't immediately uh, discernible to someone taking a kind of a cursory glance. And I mean, the lead-based paint one is pretty simple, right? A lot of kids were eating paint chips and back in the day, they turned out, you know, to, to be consuming a fair amount of lead. This is obviously not an ideal scenario. So uh, we've banned the use of it, but there's still some older homes that have that lead paint. Um, you know, there's some that have asbestos in the ceilings and in the, and the insulation and that uh, creepy uh, drywall stuff. There's dry, exactly. There's all kinds of stuff that was unfortunately, before we knew better, was being used very widely in a lot of older construction and for people who are buying houses that were built before, you know, the 1970s, even the 1980s. Uh, in some areas, uh, they maybe may have some of those components. It's at this point, you know, it's hard to say. Um, yeah, like, it, like back in Pennsylvania, I mean, stuff is really old. So lots of things built before 78 and so much in the 30s. And there's lead, lead-based lead paint all over the place. There's right, right. Radon gas, which we don't have out here. 
there's, you know, here we get earthquakes and we do. And by the way, they have to disclose where the earthquakes are. Uh, that's another thing I was going to raise is the natural hazard disclosure is yeah. um, that's a statutory requirement. And the natural hazard disclosure is a long report. It's, it's really long, but it's necessary. And the natural hazard disclosure, what it does is it is compiled by a third party company that has access to all these, in, all this information, taking the location of the property into account. They tell you uh, how far away you are from various types of existing hazards. So one of them is, as you mentioned, Fred, fault lines. So if you're within a quarter mile of a fault line, it's a very high risk area. If you're in a half mile, it's a moderate risk area, so on and so forth. Uh, They also know about where oil wells are and oil fields. And for some people, that's a, you know, there's, there's other things having to do with hazardous materials. Was there a gasoline spill here? Was there some kind of other issue? Is it a fire zone? Is it a high wind zone? Is it a flood zone? These things are all things that people previously would not have known uh, until their house got burned down or blown down or flooded. Or now it's, it's, um, using all of the available data that they get from state and federal authorities, these companies put together these reports that are intended to give you the maximum amount of uh, insight, frankly, to, to, for lack of a better term, maximum amount of insight into where exactly you're going to be living, what's around you, and what potential risks and hazards that may pose. Uh, on top of that, you know, you're also going to have a couple of other types of disclosures having to do one of them would be uh you know uh, i don't want to use the the common parlance but there's certain homes that have been used for illegal substance you know production of illegal substances and crack uh, house. illegal activity yeah you can call it a crack house if you crack really house. Want to come on it's just a crack house it's a crack house jeez uh, everybody's watched tv where they've seen crack houses so we well, know everybody point. is what a crack house looks at like. this point so uh yeah there's there's well it's not just crack houses it's also more. waiting for csi crack house i mean lab any of it blown up the whole bit yeah yeah there's labs exactly there's all kinds of you know difficult um but the bottom line is, we could go on for hours about this. But the bottom line is, you know, check just check stuff. Well, the bottom the, the that's the bottom line. But the real the real message too is not only check stuff, be very diligent. You know, when you're looking, if you're a buyer, even if you've got an, uh, an attorney, even if you've got an agent looking at these things, take a look yourself because they might not see things the way you see them. You know, you might care more about where you live relative to an oil field. You might care more about whether or not uh, there, your house was at any point a meth lab, even 20 years ago. It might really yeah. matter to you. It might right. matter to them. Right. They might say, oh, well, whatever. There's an oil field a mile away. Who cares? It's probably not active. I don't know. You might look at that and go, well, you know what? I don't want to live within a mile of an oil field. Right. You guys have the oil fields right in LA. I mean, they're- They're, they're all over. Yeah, they're, they're all over the place in LA. People don't even know why there's these random yeah. <laughs> oil towers. And I keep trying to explain to people that LA is basically built on top of several large oil fields. And 50, 60, 70 years ago, it was very common, in fact, to see these oil towers just built in the middle of a neighborhood. Nobody nobody thought it would make you sick. Nobody thought it would do anything to you. Whoops. And, uh, yeah, well, now we know. Now we know. Uh, but anyway, okay, let's keep going on. Um, 
withholding tax. I don't even know why that's in there, but let's move on from that. Megan's law, sex offenders. Just in case. Just in case. Uh, you want to see, again, another hazard. Uh, gas, hazard. I mean, just check all this stuff. Condominiums. So here's the story. Because you're buying a condominium, what you're buying is you're, you're really buying uh, shares in a, in a building that's allowing you to live in this particular unit. And you have to be a member of this association and you own this percentage interest in this association. So trust us there. We'll do a complete other show about condominiums. Um, and here's the misnomer I want everybody to understand. A condominium could be a building that has, that looks like an apartment building. That's what you normal, normally think of a condominium. A condominium can be a row of townhomes. Again, very important. Townhome is description of real estate. It's not a type of property. It is the actual real estate is a townhome because it's attached to another house. That's all it means that of three or more because a twin is side by side, same house. But anyway, condominium, that, they could all be in condominiums. There are condominiums that are single family houses. They're just done as condominiums for one reason or another. What the other thing is, other than a condominium, and by the way, if someone lives above you or below you, it absolutely has to be a condominium because it has to do with air rights. If someone is buying a property that's either a townhouse or single families, no one lives above or below them, it could be what's called a PUD, a plan unit development. Everyone calls that an association. It has an HOA. You got to be specific because the lenders are specific. They're going to charge you more for a condominium than they are for a PUD slash HOA. So the physical property is one description. How you own title to it is another. And by the way, that PUD or homeowners means you own the house single family, but you're required to be part of a homeowners association. Uh, you don't have a percentage interest. And they have usually roads and things like that. They take care of de minimis stuff. Uh, and then there's co-ops, but that's a whole different, that's basically a condominium, but you own the building and they, they that's New York and we're nowhere near New York. Anyway, um, so going into that, they're going to have to disclose all this stuff. Um, you'll read it all. It's crazy. Read the rules and regulations because it might not allow your 600 pound Doberman to be there. So just be careful. Conditions of the property, and this is something I definitely want Eli to talk about. It's like you go in, you see the property, you write the agreement, and what happens at the end? What's what 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 do the people have to do from the time the sellers have to do from the time the agreement is signed to till closing, and then what happens if there's something wrong? So this is really important, and what is not only the definition of as is. But this is something I always put in. If it's an as-is sale, I want to know as-is as of when, correct? Yeah, so uh, this is where a lot of, not a lot, but this is where a significant number, a significant number of disputes arise, unfortunately. Because in my opinion, this sort of stuff seems like it would be straightforward or common sense, but as we can all agree, Common sense just isn't common. <laughs> it's not common. And uh, they should just call it sense. Um, I think that's Very true. Much more appropriate word. Um, so the condition of the property 
there's there's a couple of ways that people see this. Uh, the most important one is how the buyer sees it because the buyer is ultimately buying something for a purpose. If they're buying it to live in it, they want it to be in the best possible condition, typically, unless they're looking at it as a fixer. Uh, and if they're an investor, they might not care because they might want to tear it down anyway. So it really depends on you know, your, uh, your, your, what you're looking to do. What is your goal with respect to this property? Uh, the condition of the property generally, when it says present physical condition as of the date of acceptance, means the date that the offer is accepted. So it's in it's as is condition as of the date that the buyer's offer to the seller is accepted by the seller, whatever that day is. So let's just use round, you know, easy numbers. If you've got an acceptance date, the date that the seller signs their acceptance of the uh, of the purchase agreement, let's say February 1st, and you've got a 30-day, you know, 60-day contingency, whatever, you know, to get through all your contingencies and close, you got a 60-day close. On closing, the property has to be in substantially, substantially the same condition as it was on the date of February 1st. Now, the reason for that is, that again, you don't want to create a situation where a seller is waiting for a buyer to remove contingencies. Let's say you got a 60-day close, you have a 45-day contingency period, you removed your contingencies, now you're irrevocably committed to purchase this property. And then the seller goes, Great, now I can party because in 15 days I'm gonna get paid. And mm-hmm. they have a huge party, and the house gets trashed, and you get, you know, you show up on on the day after closing and you go, Wow, my house, what the hell happened? Right? We don't want that. We want the seller to be held accountable if they conduct what is called in, in, in real estate law. It's known as waste. The concept is waste. You don't want to allow waste. So that means you have to maintain the property. If there's a you know broken window, you fix it. If there's a broken pipe or a leak, you fix it. You let the buyer know. You have to you know take care of it as if you weren't selling it, as if you were going to continue living it, living in it. And that when you deliver it to the seller or to the buyer, rather, uh, you're con- you're delivering it in roughly, and I say roughly, meaning substantially the same condition as it was when they first made and you first accepted the offer. There you go. It's pretty simple. The bottom line is you got to do an inspection. Got to do it. Otherwise, right, right you have issues. I would do an inspection right after it's signed, just to make sure. Take a video, and then you know a few days before closing, make sure it's the same. You know, what I would do too, one of the things that I often suggest to people is go as close to closing as possible, as close to closing as possible. You don't want to go five days before because- Right, right, right. It's empty maybe, but yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's within three or four days is probably not an issue, but you don't want to go, you don't want to remove contingencies, go check it again, and then two weeks later, walk in. You know, I I like to have people go the same day they do the signing. So it's kind of knock it all out. One day you can do it, if you can do it. I mean, some places you might even do the signing for the closing at the property, right? Right. You might even show up at the property. Send a notary anywhere, it doesn't matter. Right, exactly. These days, that's that's a possibility as well. I've heard of people doing that in the past. You know, I think... I don't think it makes a big difference, to be honest. But 
the idea here is just to be sure, again, kind of like what, what I was talking about with the natural hazard disclosure, go, go in, take a look around. Don't just say, oh, everything looks fine. Test the lights, test the HVAC. Yeah, run the water. Yeah, run the water, make sure it gets hot, you know, turn on the stove, make sure you don't have any issues because if you do, you're going to want to put that, you're going to want to, first things first, catalog all the issues, set, put them in writing, say, guys, we're not going to close until these are fixed because this isn't the house that we inspected. You know, this isn't the house, this isn't the condition it was in when when you accepted the, the purchase order, the, the purchase agreement, sorry. Um, and that's the sort of thing where the parties can say, okay, fine, we'll, we'll agree to extend closing by a week. We'll re- fix all these things. You come back, check them off, and then we'll close. Or, you know, at that point, you're irrevocably committed to buying it. So it's not like you can back out. And, and want- let's leave it there because we go on for hours. But if there's ever a problem at this point, that's when you got to call a lawyer. But that's a different story. Anyway. You don't have to. You don't have to. No, if the seller seller starts backing out, blah, blah, if blah. If the seller doesn't want to play ball, then, yeah, you call your lawyer. And now you've got a seller's default. And then it gets hairy. And we don't – We don't, I don't advise – We don't that. want that. No. I don't advise uh, – I'm, I'm just saying if it's seller – you know, anyway, if, anyway, you can always call a lawyer whenever you need it. Anyway, let's keep moving, Eli. That's what I'm saying. Uh, buyers investigation of the property and matters affecting the property. I, I think we kind of went over this. It's kind of a redundancy of stuff before and about investigating and tests and all that kind of stuff and indemnity and seller protection for entry upon property. So th- this we could go in an hour into this with that COVID form that everybody signs too, um, you know, but keep insurance on the property and don't do the wrong thing is basically the bottom line with this. Pretty simple. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Title investing. I'd rather, we're going to have at some point a title person over and they're going to describe everything about title insurance. Bottom line is you have to at least have the insurance for as much as you're getting borrowing from, because the lender requires that. There's also an owner's policy, but that 99% of people get. But anyway, skipping on. Time periods, removal contingencies. This is a good one. So, because this is going to be involved in every single one of your deals. Um, Number 14. Um, The first thing, a seller has to get you all forms. Now, when we list the property, we try to get everything that we have before people even would put an agreement in um, because it's insane. Um, Why not? But all of the brokers in Southern California and a lot, and some of them even here won't give you anything until after you sign a contract because probably old school thinking is, well, you know, we don't want them to know because that'll change the price. And maybe they're too stupid to notice there's a problem with the house after we give them the disclosures and we keep it the same price. You know what? Transparency, people. It's time. They're going to find out anyway. People are smart. You know, the, the typical buyer is buying a million dollars. The kid's got a great job working in engineering somewhere and 800 credit score and reads and likes to read this stuff. So we're kind of here to give you guys who are probably listening to this kind of the guides. But yeah, seller, give up the stuff. And the standard thing is seven days. Uh, you know, just press them. But anyway, in B, and this is the big thing, if you're going to waive your contingency for inspections, you put zero in the number of days there. Or you can put any number of days if you're in a SoCal deal. 
totally suggest that you line up your entire team before you make an offer. I tell people, go search for your um, uh, home inspector, roof inspector, termite guy, everything ahead of time. And then even when you know you're making an offer, make appointments. Make appointments three, four days, five days out. And just put them on the schedule just so you can do a shorter number of days in your contingency and you might win something because it's a shorter number of days. So that's kind of what that all is. And number five, access to the property, um, the 17 days. This is something Eli talked about earlier. Remember, even though you waive things, you can still conduct inspections. And it says there specifically for 17 days. So Eli, is this good enough? Even if they say zero days up top in B? Uh, well, I don't want to uh, have conflicting terms in an agreement because then you right. get into a problem with, well, which one controls? Control meaning which one wins if there's a conflict between two, uh, two provisions of the agreement. What I would suggest is, number one, I don't usually suggest to people to go in with a non-contingent offer. Yeah, that's, that's the way it is right now. No cow it is because we have the inspections beforehand. Yeah, I mean, there's, a, there's, a, there's 14C, which allows you to just remove contingencies with the offer. Right. That's um, what we're doing, as we did in this one. Yeah. What I often tell people is if you want to change your um, – if you if you want to change your number of days that you have for your um, for your inspections, if if you're going to even come in with an inspection period or a contingency period, what I often tell them is you'd be better off drafting an addendum, which states that if you're a buyer, for example, you'll state that 14B is hereby amended to provide for 17 days or however many days, 10 days, whatever it is, five days following the receipt of applicable disclosures Ooh. seller and seller's agent so the reason i say that is because if you say okay we'll do a five-day contingency and it takes them three days to get you the documents that you would otherwise be considering well you only got two days because right here the standard language is buyer has 17 or blank days after acceptance that again being the acceptance of the agreement. So what I like to do is I like to start one timeline uh, from the end of another. From the, I need a milestone there to actually start my clock ticking. And the only appropriate one, in my opinion, is I've got everything I need from the seller and his agent. And in those five days, I'm going to go in, I'm going to do my inspection, I'm going to get my appraisal, whatever else I need to do. But at least I've got everything I need when the clock starts ticking. So I'm not sitting there paying for an inspection, paying for an appraisal, whatever the hell it is. Uh, and then not, and I don't even have the docs yeah. I need. I don't have, an, I don't have visual disclosure. You know, I don't it, have transfer disclosure, uh, transfer disclosure statement, all that sort of stuff. It, it, the problem is in this market where it's crazy, you, you can't get into that kind of depth uh, of trying to change the agreements because everybody else is doing it plain vanilla. So yeah, when the when the market turns, and if you're listening to this in 2025 or something, and everything's great, no prediction, just a guess. Um, that's going to happen. There's so much we can do. It's just we're trying to get through people also in this market and understanding what they're giving up. And it's probably a better way of putting it 
Well, they could negotiate, but they can't. <laughs> so, um, so we talked. Indeed, the right to cancel based on everything, basically for the buyer. And I'll paraphrase: It's like if you got a problem and you don't want the place, you can get out of it. There's forms to sign. There's dates that has to be done by, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and if the buyer doesn't deliver to the seller, the contingency in time, basically the seller can blow you out after their 48-hour notice, but that's a whole different thing, um, which is E, notice to perform. This is normally two days. So, Eli, talk about the two-day because we had a situation where someone gave us a 48-hour notice two days before the actual event expired and claimed to be right. Is that correct? Wait, that one more time. They give you a two-day notice before it exp- – oh, so no, that's not right. Yeah, that's what I thought too. So that's why. Notice, yeah, it, you know, it's uh, – you know, it, it's – it's technically it is right. But the reason I say it's not right is that the notice to perform, it can be preemptive if that's the case. And even though the agreement allows for it, I would make the argument that anybody who's delivering the notice to perform before the before the expiration of a time for a certain action is basically trying to circumvent the purpose of the notice to perform. Exactly. The notice to perform is a notice and cure. Uh, it's, it's, it's a provision for a notice and cure of a potential default under the agreement. But if there's no default yet, how can you give notice of it and expect someone to cure? Exactly. That's the sort of thing that I, I don't like when people do it. I think it's disingenuous. I think it's a little bit underhanded. And, you know, when somebody, when I hear a story where somebody's done that, even though you're technically allowed to, um, it to me looks kind of like a bad faith sort of thing where they're trying to really put you under the gun and say, you already have 48 hours, but here's your 48 hour notice that if you don't get these things done in 48 hours, we're going to cancel. The next thing they'll have a 48 hour notice of the 48 hour notice. So. Right. They might as well. Yeah, exactly. It, it, it's not something I like. I think a notice to perform should be a 48 hour notice from the, from the exactly. expiration of the time period for the requested action. But I'll be honest that that's really only something that I want for buyers. If I'm a seller's agent, if I'm, yeah, but here's a seller's agent. If a seller's got another buyer that they know is going to pay him a hundred grand more, they find any way they can to weasel out of the current deal. Well, if I'm a se- well, that's what I was going to say exactly. If I'm a seller's agent. I want to do away with notice to perform. I want to write in a provision that states that if contingencies are not removed in writing by the date that they're supposed by the date and time they're supposed to be, the transaction is deemed automatically canceled. There you go. Well, I, don't even, I don't even want to give them a chance. That's, that's an interesting thing to put in to a provision to narrow down the people who are going to buy your house. Because <laughs> like, not only do you have to perform and do all your stuff and you can read what it says about if you, you know, you remove your contingencies in F, uh, you know, balls on the walls or some other goofy expression. But yeah. yeah. Something that you want to do if it's in a seller's market like we are now and you've got some somebody coming to you with a really, you know, a longer contingency period than you'd like. You know, if, you, if you're a seller and you're getting an offer above asking and they're saying, ah, I want 14-day contingency and you only want to give them seven. So you say, okay, I'll give you 14, but you're not going to get anything past that 14. No extensions, no notice to perform. No 
do it and you're it's done and i'm moving all right i know you can take about five minutes on this and talk about h g and h actually uh well close of escrow is pretty simple yeah um, close of escrow is you know after contingencies are removed you get to the date that the parties have agreed to close the transaction and cause the transfer of title of the property to switch from seller to buyer therefore closing the transaction with the recording of a deed uh, and then subsequently a deed of trust to your lender if you have one um there's really not much to talk about there because close of escrow is just the milestone but it's the stuff that happens before or after close of escrow that is really you know the more it's the, it's where the problems arise as far as the effect of cancellation on deposits this is where you're going to get the most conflicts this right here is where you're going to get the most conflict the simple version of it is if you have either party uh default prior to the removal of contingencies this is how it's going to go down it's a little little bit complicated i'll try to make it as, as clean as i can if you have a buyer cancel the agreement before removing contingencies that's during the contingency and inspection period then the deposit is returned to the buyer the agreement is canceled everybody goes home nobody gets dirty if you uh the seller at this point does not have the right to cancel the agreement i have to be clear about that that what once the offer is accepted the seller does not have the right to unilaterally cancel the agreement yeah even during the contingency period that that right belongs only to the buyer, not to the seller. Following the removal of contingencies, following the removal of contingencies. Pay attention, kids. Let's say again. I said, pay attention, kids. Pay attention, kids, if or your parents. <laughs> uh, after the removal of contingencies, the buyer is now irrevocably, irrevocably committed. Uh, well, in most cases, anyway, irrevocably committed to purchasing the property on the terms set forth in the agreement. Now, it's nobody has the right to cancel the agreement unless, and this is where it gets a little complicated, unless there's a default by either seller or by the buyer. Now, if there's a default by the buyer, let's start with that one. If there's a default by the buyer, the uh, seller's remedy meaning that we you know that the thing they're allowed to do to make up for it is to uh eat the deposit they take the deposit they cancel and they walk and the sell and the buyer does not get to purchase the property and they lose their deposit which can hurt you know, if you're buying a million dollar property you put three percent down that's 30 grand that's gone no p- nobody really wants that people don't like to lose thirty thousand dollars and not get something for it I find that to be very true. Uh, it's very true. I've never done it, but I, I can imagine how I'd feel. You know, I've, I've talked with buyers about it, and it's like it's for the right house, the right amount, they're going to work their ass off to not oh, yeah. <laughs> You know, and it's like, but if shit happens, they understand it's it's going to disappear. And that's what you really got to understand. You got to under, you got to pretend it's gone especially in a market where you're offering and waiving everything, including the loan and who knows, you know, one little change in your job and you're screwed. So it's happened. Yeah. Yeah. So it's going to be if a buyer defaults, if a seller, this is another important one is if a seller defaults, 
And let's just say hypothetically, how, how could a seller default? Well, a seller could default in a number of ways. One of them is the most obvious. The seller doesn't want to close the sale. The seller does not give escrow authorization to close the sale and cause the transfer of title because maybe seller got an offer that they liked better. Like you said, Fred, you know, maybe they had, they were, they were, you know, 30, 45 days through a 60 day escrow. And somebody came to them and said, listen, I will pay you whatever they're paying plus 15, 20%. And the seller goes, God damn it. I just want that deal. Too bad. Um, the only way you can get out of that is with the agreement of the other party to cancel. If there's a mutual agreement to cancel, they'll base, you know, maybe there's some partial deposit return, full deposit return, whatever. And that's between the parties. That's negotiable. But if the seller does not close when they're supposed to, assuming the buyer has performed in all other respects and they've submitted their all their closing documents, their lender has funded the deal, all this sort of stuff. At that point, the, uh, you know, the seller is not going to be able to cancel the deal and the buyer is going to going to have well, they're going to have a couple of remedies. One of them is going to be a breach of contract. And the breach of contract is where you're suing the other party for the loss of the what we call in the law, the benefit of the bargain, right? You, hey, the- hey, let me interject real quickly because down, I don't know, a couple of pages, you're signing something about arbitrations. Can you bring that into light and how it would work in one of these situations since that's what probably I'll get there right after I explain this because I think it's important. You're right. So the benefit of the bargain, if you're suing for breach of contract, you're basically suing for money damages. You're saying this contract was worth X to me uh, and now the seller owes me X. That's something that people do, but more often than not, people want the house, not money damages. So what they do is they sue for something called specific performance. And specific performance is available in contract cases almost exclusively. I think exclusively in contract cases. I don't think it applies in any other context where you are forcing a party to perform. You're getting the court or the arbitrator. Well, the arbitrator will do it, but it'll be enforceable by the court. You're getting the court's uh, order to to compel a party to a contract to perform, and that would take the, the the that would take the shape of going to an arbitrator saying this person or this seller did not close. They don't have any defenses. You know, there's no reason for them to to be able to refuse to close. Therefore, they're in breach. They've received a notice of. Uh, notice to close, right? They have because the notice to close is like a notice to perform, except only with respect to closing. And uh, the arbitrator will look at the case, and if they rule in your favor as the buyer, they will issue an award, and the award may include the right to seek, because an arbitrator is not a judicial officer; they can't actually compel anything. But then they would issue an award, which is enforceable in court, and that award would include. Uh, that award award will include the right to seek um, a forcible transfer of title. And the court can do that. The court has the, the right to actually order the escrow company to close the transaction uh, and to actually transfer title to the buyer and, and all, all the things that go with it. 
no seller is going to want to go through that. I, I'm virtually certain. <laughs> I've been involved in a list pendants deal on a big apartment building. It's interesting. It's interesting is one way to look at it. Now, yeah. now if you, um, you know, if you, if you want to pursue these types of claims as a, as a buyer, and I'm saying this, I just want to keep everybody sober. You know, anybody listening, I, as a lawyer who litigates, litigation is not what you want to do. <laughs> it's not what you want to do here. Uh, it costs money because you're almost certainly going to come out of pocket. I don't know many attorneys who take contract cases on contingency. And, uh, and quite frankly, you're going to be tied up in litigation for at least some time. Right, because if somebody goes to the lengths that they did to not close, they know they're going to get sued. So they're already playing the game. Right. So and, and say- this brings me up to one other thing. There's a difference between real estate and real property. Of course, Eli, you know what the difference is. But basically, when you you think you're purchasing real estate, real estate is only the sticks and bricks. When you purchase real property, you also get the rights, meaning everything underground. So a seller could all of a sudden find out that, you know, it's it's a Jed Clampett thing and he's got a billion tons of oil that he could sell for a gazillion dollars. So he doesn't want to sell the property to you because those oil rights go with the property. So that could be an example of something insane that could happen and a reason why somebody could do it. But you're right. I mean, like in normal world, you know, you just sell because the litigation is, is insanity. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and as a buyer, too, you know, what I would advise somebody, depending on the deal, depending on the house, depending on a lot of factors, sometimes it's better to negotiate a termination cancellation of the agreement. Maybe you end up with a little bit more than your deposit. Maybe your deposit was 30000 and you say, hey, I'll let you out of this deal, but I want 15000 bucks." Yeah. And you sure. get 15000 you sign your settlement agreement, they cancel escrow, and you go home with another 15000 And by I mean, the way, people, as everybody's listening to this, it's, we're scaring the hell out of them and buying. 98% of the deals have nothing like this. Yeah. But we're preparing it because every once in a while, there's a lunatic. I had one lunatic in L.A. a few months ago who tried what? to- What? Oh, a yeah. lunatic in L.A.? That's so shocking. Yeah, you're talking to one. I'm talking to two. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, well, agent, she she was a piece of work. But I could have a whole show on just these agents, the things they do. And but, but we're not going down that track because we it, it's 6.02, Misty. Are we uh, almost done? Or- yeah. Uh, yes, you noticed. I've sent you two slacks. So noticing, I'm trying to shut him up, but you know it's hard. No, it's so, great. So yeah, we got to go basically down uh, a couple of pages, and I think we can fly through this stuff, and then you listen to our next podcast where we'll have no constraints at all. So yeah, when you say everybody listening, we hope you're still hanging on. If you yeah. are. Now they're getting ready to fly there, through there's it. There's got to be a, a, a weed or a drinking game going on with what we're doing and saying here, where I hope so. Okay, so we went through the seller's right to cancel, the notice of performance, blah, 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 blah. And now we're on to final verification condition. Uh, condition. I think we talked about that. 
repairs that were supposed to be completed. It's all got to be done right. Let's let's not even bother with that. Proration of taxes and other items. Basically, the bottom line is, if you buy the house on February 15th, you don't owe anybody anything for anything before that, but you owe in ad- for anything going forward. And if someone paid for something in advance for you, now that you're closing, you have to pay them back. So that's what prorations are. And it's mostly due to real estate taxes. And sometimes it's condominium fees, things like that. So uh, brokers, compensation, who gets compensated, scope of duties, representative capacities. Basically, your broker represents you as a buyer. The seller is represented by their own broker, period, done, end of sentence. And, and the two are like, you know, the two football teams, two hockey teams battling. You're afraid you shake hands. Let's do hockey because you shake hands at the end after everything's fine, after you beat the hell out of each other. Yeah. Um, but that that's what this basically is. There's another thing where one person could represent both parties. It's called dual agency. We could spend a month of podcasts on dual agency. And you know what, Misty? We actually already talked about it. We already did that in part one. So feel free to go back if you're still. Right. Yes. Yes. Thank you. But dual agency, bad. Um, Join escrow instructions. So in California, you have what's called an escrow company. And here's a little secret for you people in Southern California. In Southern California, the agents sell you on this idea of having an escrow company and then a separate title company. Why? So they make two separate fees and it's more expensive. But in Northern California, we use just an escrow company that also is a title company. It's all in one. And guess what? The fees are cheaper. And guess what? They do all over the state. So if you have a Southern California broker taking your listing, uh, in a county where there are listings, uh, where you control the um, uh, escrow company and the title and state transfer tax, there's all kinds of stuff. You have to edit this because <laughs> I'm trying to think of something else. Um, I don't know who pays. Hang on. I want to promote a, a website I made up. It's it's pretty simple. It's just a uh, uh, where is it? There it is. Um, who pays for what? dot com. It's just a Google sheet, and it'll tell you in the county. It'll give you the county contact info, and for escrow, title, and county transfer tax, who pays it? The seller or the buyer? Sometimes it's split. And then there's some city transfer taxes and how much they are and what's split. So that was who pays for what.com at its FOR. If you want to check that. Anyway. Also, yeah. Ariva.com. Oh gosh, a commercial. Please go and check out Ariva.com. And Eli, are there any parting words that you would like to and embellish. Yeah, because we're going to have part four where we're going to start with remedies for buyer's breach of contract and dispute. Oh, part four. Attorney's fees. Actually, that will be part six. Part 17. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we split this up. We hope we keep you listening. Trying to make, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Trying to make it somewhat amusing and informative. Eli. Yeah, my only parting words... Um. 
I guess my parting words are, uh, you know, feel free to reach out. I, I'll, I'll have, uh, I'll have you guys post my uh, business info. Great. For yeah. anybody who's listening, if they, you know, have a question or I usually give people a brief uh, free consultation when I, when I chat, you know, at the, at the outset and uh, sometimes representation is not needed. Sometimes it is, but uh, in any event, you know, don't, don't hesitate. Um, to examine your options when you're either getting into a deal, when you're in a deal, you know, sometimes you want a lawyer to look over your title stuff. Sometimes you want a lawyer to look over your agreements, you know, make sure that they're clean, make sure that they're tight. And um, for people who are um, considering buying or selling a home, talk to Fred. The guy's been doing it for how many, Fred, how many decades you've been doing this? Come on, tell us. (laughs) He doesn't want to age himself. Four, four. I got into originally the mortgage business itself in 1986. Okay, so about 500 years. <laughs> Reagan was president. Who? Yeah. I'm just kidding. Well. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you all so much. And before we go to 7 p.m., I'm going to wrap it up and say thanks, everyone, for listening. We will be back with I more. I have one last word. I'm sorry. Oh, good. My good. one last word and I dodge coin. Why not? Okay. So thank you so much for listening to We Fix Real Estate. Check out Ariva.com. Find out how much your rebate can be with the flat fee, fixed fee rebate. We are fixing real estate. We're disrupting it. Fred doesn't like that word, but as long as you're going to use Dogecoin, we're going to say it. All right. Thank you so much. And thank you, Eli. Wait, we got, we got, we got two and a half minutes. And one other quick thing, Ariva.mortgage. So we, we branded everything in the mortgage side there, and we're coming up with some really cool things. You can apply online. We run the credit and the Fannie Mae approval for you. No problem, no cost. And we also have a um, really interesting form that you can fill out that gives me every bit of information I need to get you a mortgage rate because it's incredibly ridiculous how many little things they have to know before they can give you a rate. So right on there, real easy to use at Ariva.mortgage. Awesome. Thank you all so much. Cheers.